we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Episode 6, Economics, Local Government, and Regional Development, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Last week, we were joined by Danny Pataki and Johnny Lahane of Excel 7. Some listeners wanted a clarification of what they do. Fair question. Danny and Johnny work with small businesses to ensure their success. They work with people who have an idea for a business and help shape the idea into a plan for success. Their terminology can be complicated, but that's it in a nutshell. It's trying to improve the chances that a small business, entrepreneur, an innovator will bring their idea to market. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to patternforprogress.org slash podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, and Stitcher. This week's pattern paradigm trend, cash and coin. Is there less in circulation? Yes. During this pandemic, those who could move to paying through debit cards and online payment systems like Venmo have done so. It was already happening, but the pandemic accelerated the movement. It's cleaner, it's faster, and for many, they just like it. But like most trends, what if you cannot use it? Most suggest cash is actually here to stay. Some municipalities have passed laws to ensure it, as they view it as an equity issue. But think back to the days when you were in your car and you stopped to pay cash at a toll. Not so much anymore. It is now the common practice to use EasyPass and not cash. So I suspect this is one of those that it's just a matter of time. In episode six, we turn our attention to economics and regional development. We'll also take a look at the impact on local governments. To join me are Kent Gardner, a principal in the consulting firm, the Center for Governmental Research, or CGR, and Michael Andolo, the director of economic development with the MRB Group. They have worked for years in economic development and government service delivery in New York State. They have become two of my go-to guys to ask, will this work when it comes to state economic development policy? But before that, let's ask Joe Chaika, what's up, Joe, to hear what Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress is up to this week. Thanks, Judy. I'd like to talk a little bit 
about the Fellows Program, which is starting next week. The Pattern Fellows is a regional leadership training program, which is geared towards mid-career professionals. Pattern started this program back in 2007 in an effort to expand the horizons of those already acknowledged as leaders in their communities and in their disciplines and professions. The program helps participants to gain a more intimate knowledge of the Hudson Valley region, and it also encourages them to explore regional approaches to their work. Since 2007, we have had almost 300 people graduate from this fellows program. In previous years, fellows have included leaders from the fields of finance, government, economic and community development, land conservation, law, human services, healthcare, academia, and much more. The class used to meet in our conference room in the city of Newburgh. Nice big view of the water and looking at downtown Newburgh. Well, the world has changed. The fellows class now meets every two weeks in the virtual world of Zoom. There's a cost to the program in the form of a tuition. Pattern's always looking for sponsorships to help support this regional education program. Past alumni have always thought they've got a big bang for their buck with this program. As we enter the 14th year of the Patterns Fellows Program, we find ourselves in extraordinary times. We are in a pandemic. The economy is in total disarray. And we are faced with social unrest. Pattern as an organization created a task force to look at itself through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of the outcomes was to have our fellows leadership program tackle the issue of institutional racism here in the Hudson Valley. So this year's fellow class will tackle that issue. Last year's fellows program focused on the goal of addressing the polarization in our society. Like everyone else, the program had to pivot last spring. We met virtually, helped each other through the early months of the pandemic. And if you have a moment, I want you to take a look at the video about the fellow's experience. I promise it will move you. It was prepared for the graduation, but it was really a testimony to both their resilience as individuals and their desire to see the program through. Through a combination of compelling speakers, readings, required readings, and visual documentation, fellows will gain an understanding of how racism has been embedded in our culture and what can be done about it. Now, this is not an easy conversation, and we encourage participants to speak freely in this safe zone. Instead of the traditional groupings of fellows, this year we will be working together as a single group to pull together a report on how to engage communities in a better and stronger fashion to discuss institutional racism. Oh, one last thing. We have finalized our Housing Matters event, Shelter from the Storm. I encourage everyone to visit our website. Tickets are now available with early bird specials through the end of October. Thanks, JD. Thanks, Joe. Um, today's guests 
are Kent Gardner, Chief Economist with CGR in Rochester, and Michael Endolo, the Director of Economic Development with the MRB Group in Saratoga. Um, welcome, guys, and how are you faring, and how are you both doing, and, and how's your firm pivoted, and all that stuff? Kent? Well, good morning, Jonathan. Pleasure to be here, and nice to, nice to chat with you. Uh, we're doing fine. Uh, Center for Government Research is a 105-year-old not-for-profit started by George Eastman of Eastman Kodak. Uh, our role over the, the years has been to serve as a consultancy largely to, to not-for-profits and uh, United Way agencies and so forth, and you know, local governments, uh, sometimes uh, you know, occasionally a state government. And uh, so we uh, find ourselves to be a little bit counter-cyclical, uh, you know, which is kind of nice. Uh, so when the, the, the roof drop falls in for um, uh, local governments uh, and they're trying to figure out how to save money, they often turn to us at CGR. So we have a number of engagements that have come up since COVID hit. Um, you know, it still is a, a, the other piece of that course is that as time goes on, they're going to have a whole lot less discretionary money. So while we can help them perhaps uh, dig out of the hole, uh, there are many other things that they probably would like to do or could do and, and might engage us to help them with. But, uh, you know, they're probably not going to have the discretionary cash to do that. So we're doing okay, but nervous. As as we all are, Michael. How about you? Sure. Well, I work for MRB Group, as you mentioned, and we're younger than CGR. We've only been around for ninety years, so not not quite <laughs> the depth of experience of Kent's group. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> we are mostly municipal engineers. I'm a bit the odd, the the odd one out as an economic developer, and as municipal engineers, they kind of have a fairly steady eddy presence. You know keeping the sewer and water running and the highways and so on like that. My work in economic development, however, is very cyclical, unlike Kent's. And so um, a lot of the projects that we would have done, the typical planning projects or market analysis, that kind of thing, has gone on hold. We've pivoted mostly to crisis management. Uh, how can we do more with less? How can we continue to do economic development in a very resource-constrained world? And one aspect of that is, you know, where's the money? And right now, that answer is the federal government. So we've been fortunate now to see a bunch of the federal money trickle through to the local organizations, and that's starting to, to generate certainly some activity on the planning side of things. So let Kent, I'm going to direct this question to you, and then and then Michael, feel free to chime in. You know, either from your current experience or your prior experience. I think now. Um, so one question is, Kent, is this the moment in time we've been waiting for? Does consolidation of local governments actually begin to occur? Well, you know, Jonathan, it's a great question, and it, it's a. I think it's a bit of a complicated response. And the first point I'd make is that our, I think what people popularly think about as the benefit of consolidating governments is perhaps a, a bit exaggerated. And uh, the uh, we we find as a rule of thumb when we go in and look at a local local governments for uh, for merger consolidation, and we've done I don't know north of seventy five of these studies over the last five, 10 years, uh, what we conclude often is that the savings out of the box are maybe about 5%. 
Now, that perhaps surprises you, but most of the activities of local government have to happen. It doesn't matter whether they're being performed by the town or they're being performed by the village. Uh, they still have to happen in, in the lieu of a village. The town will step in. And most of the work that needs to be done is pretty labor-intensive. So you still have to plow the roads. You still have to you know, manage the, uh, the sewers. Now, the one exception there is when we're talking about public safety. So public safety, you've got a 24-7 staffing problem. And if you have a town and a village, for example, or two towns, both of which have the full public safety apparatus, they've got police, they've got fire 24-7, then putting them together can actually save them some pretty serious money. But just off the top, if you've got a village and a town, um, unless the, um, the municipalities have been taking on responsibilities they don't have to, uh, by and large, the, uh, again, the out-of-the-box savings are uh, often rather modest. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Uh, I still think we often get better governance by eliminating you know, some, some very small uh, uh, local governments uh, just because I think you get a, um, a higher level. You, you know, you're digging into a deeper pool of volunteers, for example, for all those functions that really are staffed at the local government level by, by volunteers. Uh, so you do end up with, I think, better governance. And that probably means lower cost over time. But people who expect to see their tax bill decrease by 20, 30, 40 percent just because they merged, you know, eliminated the village and merged with the town, I think those people are often disappointed. So does the pressure on the revenue side to the towns and villages that is occurring, maybe not as much now, but in 2021, and if the economic hardship goes on for a while, does that bring more people to the table to say, what can we share or do we you know, keep our form of government? You know, I think it certainly does bring people to the table and it does keep, give people an opportunity to act. Um, I'm not so sure that consolidation is the quickest way to save money. I think every you know, organization on the planet um, you know, could do some, you know, some, some trimming and cutting and, and refocusing. And uh, I would urge all of them to t- take advantage of this opportunity. I mean, it sounds a little cruel to say, but, you know, if there's uh, this, this, you know, person you've had working for you for the last five or six years, they really have not managed to fulfill their, their, their promise. You thought that they were going to perform one role and they're, they're, they're really not performing that role. Um, they're not terrible. Uh, they're nice people, uh, but realistically, they're not as productive as you would hope them, they, them to be. And frankly, in this time of crisis, what, how you need them to be. So I think that folks are going to be you know, taking a look at their staffing and saying, not necessarily that we're going to consolidate and you know, roll our you know, public works department into the town's public works department, but maybe uh, th- there are a couple of people that uh, you know, haven't worked out and we could figure out a way to uh, ask them to move on to a different career. Um, Michael, um, maybe the best way to reframe this question for you, given your economic development background, is that is there the opportunity for local governments to be working together in the world of economic development, given the crisis that's before them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, and in fact, I would I wholeheartedly agree with what Kent said. Uh, you know, the full consolidation is a very long term play. Uh, what we're seeing in the short term is much more related to uh, shared services uh, or outsourcing. Now, in the economic development world, interestingly enough, we have a couple of these events happening right now. 
um, in the capital district, for example, CEG, which is the Center for Economic Growth, is consolidating back to the capital region chamber of commerce, for example. So those two organizations are merging. Um, and that's that's a form of shared services. It's not necessarily municipality. Um, on the outsourcing side, sometimes you get into this with respect to certain needs that are highly technical in nature. Like you might have, uh, so every community that has a water plant, for example, has to have a certified technician that runs that. Well, if you do a shared services agreement, you can have one technician that runs the town and village or the two towns or the three towns, whatever like that. And you don't run into the, the same level of issue of each, each person having to have a certified professional. Michael, for that are, matter, sometimes. Uh, is that, I'm just curious, are you finding up in the capital district that there is a shortage or there is a demand for the people that administer sewer and water? Because throughout the Hudson Valley, that is happening right now. The, the cohort that was managing it is retiring yep. and there yep. isn't bench strength. No, that's exactly, I would say that applies to pretty much anywhere across okay. the state. You're getting that the wave of retirements and the highly qualified folks that were in place and have been there for 20 or 30 years are retiring. And then through COVID, there's been some advanced retirements or early retirements, if you will. And now suddenly the community says, well, we can't let you retire yet. You're going to have to stay on for a little bit longer because we, we can't run our plant without you. There's been some interesting things there. Now, I will say one other thing, just a quick plug for Saratoga Springs. What, what this has uh, brought out is Saratoga Springs is undergoing a charter change initiative. We currently have a very archaic form of government called a commission where you directly elect the heads of each of the major departments. Oh, great. Can you imagine right. what happens when you have a crisis like this and now suddenly we have to cut our budget by 10%? Well, it's not coming out of my budget. It's coming out of your budget, <laughs> right? I believe so Columbia County is also kind of, they don't really have a county manager. And I think the board members or the town supervisors actually run the departments in Columbia County, but maybe that's up by you and you'd know better. But Well, it's just, it, it's brought to forefront that, that uh, the petition and the, the change to better governance. So I think that's what we're talking about here to a large extent is how do we do how do we do better things with our existing resources? And that's one way. How do we reorganize the government? And it could be a charter change. It could be a shared service. It could be an outsourcing, whatever it is. And I can say that in Chautauqua County, for example, uh, there's a countywide initiative to create a shared service, uh, a shared um, a, a managerial service for the, for the sewage uh, treatment systems, for the water yeah. systems and sewage systems. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, for the same reasons that the two of you have articulated. But the opportunity there is interesting because, um, you know, I think, again, speaking in terms of Chautauqua County, which I know pretty, pretty well, uh, a pretty large share of those water plants um, have been forced by the Department of Environmental Conservation to, um, to, to change their water source. So they used to have a, a surface source. Now they have to have a, a, you know, an underwater source. Uh, they have renovated their plants. It's cost a lot of money. Uh, but at mm -hmm. the same time, when they're, once they were done with that, the plant didn't need five, six, seven hours a day. It needed maybe an hour a day or 45 minutes mm -hmm. a day. So, so the opportunity mm -hmm. there is, uh, I think, pretty considerable. Uh, almost like a circuit rider approach to no one needs their own person full time. I don't know how badly um, 
we know we're feeling it acutely in the Hudson Valley. There are many people, many districts that are saying they cannot hold on to their um, head of sewer or water. So we're going to have to be creative in figuring out how to administer. And I wonder, you know, to your point, Ken, maybe it's not a consolidation, but maybe it is a invigorated way to look at shared services. I completely agree. You know, the consolidation is often a red herring because there are so many things that go on. I mean, I can't tell you, uh, there are only a couple of cases that, that I've worked on over the years. And again, it's been a lot of them, dozens of these of these communities. Um, almost all of the benefits can be achieved through shared services in almost every case. Uh, it's, it's not to say that there aren't some advantages of dissolving. I mean, I'm wholly supportive in many communities, but most of the cost saving can, can happen because of the uh, just better cooperation. I'll give you a quick, quick anecdote. Years ago, we were in a couple of Chautauqua County communities, a village and town. Uh, we were interviewing the village DPW head about the whole notion of consolidation. He looks at his watch about 45 minutes into our interview and he says, oh, excuse me, I got to go. Um, you know, because the, the town highway superintendent is supervising our joint crews while we are paving a road. We've been talking to the guy for 45 minutes about shared services. He suddenly announces that he's going to go up because they're jointly paving a road. Do you do this often? He looks at me like I got two heads. Well, of course. I mean, why wouldn't we? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Michael, let me let me use, let me switch this a little bit to um, local economic development because I know that municipalities are struggling to figure out where their revenue is coming from. Um, are there new tools? Are there any or old tools that we should dust off in terms of looking at, you know, how do they finance uh, things going into the future? I mean, they're struggling right now to balance their budget, yet they still want to do economic development. Sure. Well, one one that we're seeing a big resurgence on is um uh, tax anticipation notes or bond anticipation notes or revenue anticipation notes, right? Everyone formulated their budget pre-COVID, COVID hit. Now they have a huge hole. They can only cut so much in the immediate term. Why not issue some short-term paper and get you through the crisis and, and allow you a little bit more breathing room? So we're seeing tons, many, many, many communities that are issuing those. Um, there's another tool that's out there um, that a lot of folks you know, in the economic development world, at least, uh, I are turning to, and that's the Opportunity Zones program. And quite simply, that's, again, it's a federal program. There's no, there's no local cost to that, to the extent to which they can promote um, the use of that, if they happen to have an Opportunity Zone, has certainly been helpful um, because there's no local cost. Um, is, the other is thing it I would still say currently that, alive? I mean, they, I thought it was one calendar year. Is it still... The opportunity is it it's still there. It's okay. still there. It it tends to work better in very healthy real estate markets, and in particular in metro major metro areas, um, because the deal size has to be big enough where you can overlay the opportunity zone structure on it and still make sense for the money to flow in. So it's not going to be very appropriate to a really small community. Uh, but I've been working in it. Actually, there's one project in Oneonta. So that's a relatively small community, but it's m mostly the larger ones like Troy, for example. I've been working on a project there. Um, but again, the point is that, yes, it's still going on. It should be active until 2026, unless okay. that, that program changes, which it could change at any moment, depending on the outcome of the election. 
Um, actually, one other tool I will mention, and it's it's an old tool, but people are, I guess, looking at it again, is the importance of the rainy day fund. And, you know, I've, we've had, we've hosted a couple roundtables about, about the fiscal impacts of this. And the people that have a rainy day fund have been like, yes, this is why we've been doing it for so many years, you know, and people complain, our constituents have been complaining, why do we have these big fund balances? Well, this is why. <laughs> so it's the yeah, I think it's raining. of that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Kent, were you trying to jump in on that or? Oh, I just noted that it is raining indeed. Yeah, <laughs> it absolutely is. All right. So um, let's let's switch gears to manufacturing, um, an issue that the three of us have been working on. But is this that moment? Is this that carpe diem moment for the state of New York to say we can do manufacturing in the state of New York? Um, do you believe it is that moment? And if so, what do we need to do? Well, let me take a first quick uh, run at it. The, um, I, I think the important thing to remember is that what, drive, what, dro what drove offshoring and what will drive reshoring uh, is largely labor cost. Um, and so if you have a, you know, why, why did the apparel industry leave the, the United States? Well, apparel industry employs lots and lots and lots of people uh, doing repetitive work at a relatively low rate of pay. And if you can hire, um, you know, t t 10 um, people in uh, Guangzhou uh, for what you can hire one person in uh, Poughkeepsie, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the temptation to hire to, to move to China is really robust. Um, now, that's still true. It's still cheaper to, to hire uh, someone in Vietnam or Cambodia. Uh, or Thailand, or China, uh, or Mexico, uh, but the the difference has has narrowed considerably. The other thing that's changed is that our capital labor ratios in all of these manufacturing uh, sectors have also changed. So, what a, a process that may re required a, a hundred workers, forget the ethnicity; it doesn't matter where they live, or, you know, where they uh, or what they're being paid. It used to require a hundred; now it, works, it requires five. Well, then once again, even if there is a significant difference in pay rate, uh, that difference in pay rate means uh, uh, has a much smaller impact on the bottom line. So a lot of what of, of the potential for reshoring uh, and the slowing of offshoring is really driven by that capital labor ratio and the, and the change in the in the, uh, in the labor cost. So uh, yes, there are other reasons, and we can move to those. But the, those are the economic fundamentals that have been driving this trend. Okay, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Workforce pre-COVID workforce was, you know, I I interview business owners all over the place. That that's always the first thing off of their lips about what's what's hindering their growth is the workforce. Uh, so I agree uh, very much with Kent. It's just in COVID right now, it's been less of the the thing because we have a crisis on our hands, but. Um, one of the things that I really like to hit on is really it's about upskilling more than anything else. You know, the fact of the matter is, you know, outside of New York City, we've had declining population for a long time. Of course, there's pockets and areas where that's not the case. But in general, uh, so it's really about taking your existing workforce and upskilling them into advanced manufacturing, right? And uh, as we like to joke around right now, if you're not doing advanced manufacturing, you know, you're probably not doing manufacturing. So um, uh, because of that capital ratio that Kent mentioned, 
really what I would always suggest people to focus on in the economic development world is let's not look at the commodities. Let's not look at the, the low end of the wage scale. Let's figure out how to focus on those industries and the processes that are going to involve upskilling the, the workforce to something where you're going to be able to move into that uh, capital intensive uh, you know, type of operation. Um, and that, I mean, there's, there's several benefits to that, but I guess where would I want to compete? I don't want to compete on, you know, globally against low labor costs. I want to compete on skill and I want to compete on mechanization, right? So it's, it's, let's, let's align our programs to do that. So yeah, Michael, I'm uh, always remarked. I'm I, I, one of the, the examples of a successful firm here in Rochester is Ledestri Foods. Uh, mm-hmm. Ledestri Foods, they make uh, tomato sauce, right? You know, low tech product, you know, big pot, you know, great big ladle, uh, you know, lots of tomatoes. Um, but with about 300 people, they make, I think it's uh, north of 2 million jars of sauce a day at Ledestri Foods. Um, you know, that's an advanced manufacturing facility. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. and what do you mean by that, Ken? Because, you know, you described like the old fashioned way in which we make you know, an Italian spaghetti sauce, but if you went into the plant, what would you see? Yeah, you'd see a lot fewer people. You'd see uh, some, you know, highly automated, very sophisticated manufacturing processes. The other thing to know about this is that they get the tomatoes from California, for heaven's sake. So they're taking tomatoes from California in rail cars to Rochester in time enough to be able to process them into sauce. And, you know, this isn't high-end sauce. Um, I, I believe, I don't know this for certain, but I do believe that they are the supplier to the Wegmans food markets. Wegmans routinely sells their, their, their jarred sauce for 99 cents a jar. Uh, mm. So they are uh, able to make a, 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 a good living. It's a, it's a prosperous company. Uh, it's a prosperous company that employs a lot of people in the Rochester area. Um, and they do this with uh, very sophisticated logistics and very sophisticated manufacturing processes. So, Michael, and, and they uh, they operate. I'll just last note on that is they operate in the Eastman Business Park, and they use uh, the uh, waste steam as a as part of their processing. So they're actually able to capture that energy value, uh, and that allows them to have lower unit costs. So it's also like it's the technology around using the the, the steam that's provided by the business park. It's an interesting right. case. So, so let's, so what was the genesis and how long has the firm been there? Did they start small? Did they grow? What was the, what's the story, backstory? Well, yeah, Giovanni Ledestri uh, was part of, of, of the uh, management uh, team for Ragu. Um, And then he was, uh, you know, he he was, he was bought out at one point. Uh, He had a non-compete clause for a period of years. And once that expired, he went into business for himself and has built, uh, you know, that was 25 years ago, probably. But he's been uh, you know, very successful as a shrewd uh, businessman. He, uh, he has uh, several plants in California, um, the largest plants, I believe, are in Rochester, but still he has several plants in California, does contract manufacturing. And this is also, I mean, if you think about the market opportunity, uh, the last 25 years have, have seen an explosion in what we call house brands in the grocery biz. So um, you walk into Wegmans, for example, sometimes it's hard to find what you might think of as a brand name product because the Wegmans brand itself has taken up so much shelf space. So Ledestri saw that as an opportunity. So 
I think there are a couple of things that they sell under their own name, but not many. I think it's Francesco Rinaldi. If you see the Francesco yes. Rinaldi yes. tomato sauce, that's, that's a Ledestri product. That's a, and that is their own product, uh, you know, top to bottom. But by and large, almost everything else is sold under someone else's name. Uh, so they'll sell all kinds of sauces. Um, you know, so it's, it's an example of uh, someone who really understands how to make use of technology, but also has a, a keen sense of where the market is going and how to sell his services to people who are interested in, again, in those private label sauces. Michael, you, I, wa- I want to make sure I understand the point that you were making. So is it, was the sense of upscaling a way to combat the fact that the cost of labor is often cheaper outside of the United States? Or I didn't really, did I get that right? That you're saying that's a value add that we could offer when the cost of labor may not be um, something in a cost benefit analysis that works for our favor. Yeah, well, well, the point is, is actually, this is a the, the case study we were just talking about. It's an interesting exception to it, um, and, and the reason why I think it's an interesting exception is just because when you talk about something like tomato sauce, which is more of a commodity, right? That it's about how do you how do you create a manufacturing process that requires the least amount of labor and input cost, right? So that and that and that's going to be a, a very skilled and very process focused, uh, you know, process. So in the case of that, in the Eastman Business Park where they have a um, electric generating station in the park, right? And this is all from the old Eastman Kodak infrastructure that's there. Well, you produce a lot of waste heat and that steam. And if you pipe the steam to your tomato sauce manufacturer, right, then they have that much less that they have to buy natural gas. It drives their unit costs down and they, they're able to gain off of that. Mm-hmm. My larger point, though, was about um, my, I guess my focus in the economic development world would be more about how do we take someone or a business or a process where uh, we can take them and, and get out of the commodity market and go into a custom market or go into a high tech process, right? So for an example, uh, there's a glass manufacturer in Victor. How do you take a glass manufacturer that's using old processes and get them into, you know, a machining environment with like high tech computer, uh, you know, computer skills that allow for less waste um, and allow for a, a more throughput through the same line, right? So our per unit costs go down. Well, in order to get to there, you need to have a technician that can run one of those machines. So you need to upskill your existing labor force to there. That's the market that I want to play in because it's higher wage jobs and it's mm-hmm. jobs that are not competing with China, right? So does that offer the, is that one of the opportunities for people that talk gee, let's bring manufacturing back to New York. It's redesigning it. It's changing the labor force. And, but if, is there an opportunity then to grow the number of higher paying jobs in New York by focusing on the skill level? It seems like there's so much that has worked against us in terms of Mm -hmm. New York being a center for manufacturing that's gone on for decades. And yet, um, the the conversation has changed right now, partially due to politics in terms of we don't want to be stuck with products that are being made overseas. But is yes. this also a moment in time that we should and can think about expanding the manufacturing sector? 
Yes, and and don't forget that when we talk about the decline in manufacturing, it's a decline in the share of jobs in manufacturing. Manufacturing GDP, right? The numbers around that have actually gone up very steadily and and without without abatement, right? So there's you know we are manufacturing on a GDP basis um, far more than we were a decade ago. It's just that it's all the high value products, right? It's it's all the very higher end, and it's the and it's you know the the as Kent was mentioning, you know where there was a hundred people doing something, now there's five, right? So our employment counts have gone way out. Um, that's the other argument for upskilling is that if you know, in order for these businesses to survive, they have to be reducing headcount. That's an absolute requirement. They have to constantly be reducing headcount. Um, and so the only way to maintain uh, manufacturing job counts is to expand the number of plants, the number of lines, the number of whatever it is. On the onshoring topic that Kent mentioned earlier, one of the neat things is import substitution, right? Mm-hmm. And what that means basically is to say, whereas maybe you've been sourcing your product, your input product from China or wherever, can you find a local source of that where by by altering maybe your process or your equipment or your machinery or your skills, you can use that input and have as good or better product, hopefully a better product, um, and be able to source that locally. That's another way to increase manufacturing is if, if the extent to which you can get folks to buy locally uh, their inputs. One of the things that and we've I think seen... One, one of the things we've seen in strategy-wise is, is just, uh, you know, is that, that people are talking more about vertical integration. And I think that's been very positive to say, is there a way we can vertically integrate, which means to say, capture upstream and downstream from your production. You might be great at one step of the production. Can you grab above or below that on the, on the um, production line? And again, that's it is driven by by cost factors. Um, uh, but but I think the other thing we haven't uh, really started talking about um, in the, this conversation is really the you know the national security question. You know, we found ourselves without ventilators. We found ourselves with short of simple things like uh, you know good good face masks. And we, I think, as a nation, recognize that perhaps that's a problem. We're also running into that in um, in terms of drugs. You know, many of you probably read a story of a uh, three quarters of a billion dollar uh, in contract that the feds uh, entered into or are entering into with Eastman Kodak to do, produce the precursors for pharmaceuticals, for uh, uh, particularly for generic for pharmaceuticals. Now, this is this is great for Kodak. Kodak has the capacity to do this. I mean, people think of Kodak's, uh, Kodak as an optics company, but really from its entire history, it's really been a chemistry driven company. So this really makes a lot of sense. Now, they had a little stumble there. I, <clears throat> there was a, a, some uh, evidence of insider trading, which kind of put the whole deal, took the whole thing off the uh, front pages. I am pretty sure that it is still moving forward. There was a an internal uh, investigation that was contracted for by the board that said that you know that what happened was was stupid but not criminal. <laughs> so okay. I don't know whether stupid but not criminal keeps the deal, but uh, we're certainly hoping so here in Rochester. But that's an example where the federal government said ex- as it says explicitly there is this really critical problem we have. We want to be able to produce pharmaceuticals to tackle COVID-19, and yet all of our suppliers are someplace else, and maybe they're not uh, in a country that's being particularly friendly right now. So let's reach out to a, um, you know, a, a 
U.S.-based manufacturer that can fill this particular gap so that we don't have the same kind of vulnerability in the future. So that's going to, I mean, and Kodak is a good example of where there was federal money to help um, the company pivot. Do, do either of you believe there will be state money that will be able to flow in in the next year or so to be able to enlarge the manufacturing production in New York State. I mean, we've all been led to believe, or at least I have, you know, that money is not something the state has a lot of. And so what do we do if there isn't money? What's the incentive? How do we help companies retool, reskill? Are there other strategies that they can try and do if it isn't an outright grant? I think that's a huge problem, and we talk a lot about tax credits. We're uh, often in the economic development world, uh, you know, eager to give away, you know, uh, something that we uh, uh, to say that we'll we'll agree to not receive taxes in the future, and for certain kinds of activities that uh, can be a a powerful incentive. Investment tax credits can certainly help. Once again, it's not money that is uh, cash out of the budget. It's simply an acknowledgement that as you establish your facility here, you know we're not going to tax you in the future for a period of years. Uh, and when you're a high tax state like New York, I mean, you know, you know, we certainly have to be making use of that kind of a tax credit. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I, don't, you know, I mean, we're we're looking under uh, sofa cushions just to pay our school aid as a state. And uh, I think that before we start shelling out big bucks for uh, large scale economic development initiatives. I think that the people have to feel comfortable that the state is capable of meeting its obligations to uh, local governments, particularly the schools. Um, let me let me jump to one other issue because I'm just going to be mindful of our time together, and I I would love to sit and talk to both of you for hours. But um, you've both had experience with the state's programs, um, such as the consolidated funding application, the CFA the Downtown Revitalization Initiative. Um, we all know that the state just couldn't do it this year. Any thoughts about what a revived version of that could look like, albeit we know it'll be less money, but any idea on how to make it go further or what categories or what could we do? Michael, any thoughts? Sure. Actually, I have a bunch of thoughts there. Uh, my heart, <laughs> my heart is with local government, and and frankly, we're not going to be able. You know, we're not we're not going to on this podcast. We're not going to influence federal policy, right? No. <laughs> so, I think about I think about this quite a bit. Um, you know, a, f- a few years ago now, the state moved to the REDC models, the Regional Economic Development Council models. I think hugely successfully that it was people were you know upset about it initially. But it really made a lot of sense. We we really have to think about some of these problems, like things that we talked about with the workforce. It really is a, at a regional level. You know, you're not going to have a village solving a community college's issues around a workforce training program. Um, my one my one thing of, there's two things I want to say about the RADCs, and I think this is this is how we could move forward with uh, whatever round of CFA we get in the future. Is it's always been a little unclear to me how RADCs execute on their plans with respect to the CFA process. Now, there's goals, there's strategies, and so on like that, and every grant application has to meet 
some REDC mm-hmm. strategy, but it's usually pretty easy to shoehorn in something to one or more strategies, right? Um, I'd love to. I'd love to see how REDCs where they have been. I'd love to do more, like directly influencing how that happens and where the priorities happen for that region, and, and really focusing an economic strategy on that. And the second thing I want to say is very related, which is to say there are some REDCs in the state that benefit from a regional economic development organization that happens to correspond exactly to the same set of counties. Mm-hmm. Some regions have a big disconnect, which means to say they don't really have a regional organization that serves economic development for that region. It may only cover half that region. It may cover a bunch of counties outside that region. And so there's a misalignment there. Um, same thing with the economic development districts in New York State which is a U.S. Economic Development Administration uh, designation. Some of those correspond very neatly to REDC regions and some don't. So I see there's a lot of scope for alignment. How do we align the REDC plans with the CFA process? How do we align the organizations that stand behind the REDCs to actually serve those areas, including the economic development districts and the metropolitan planning organizations, the MPOs, and so on like that. I think there's some more work to do there. So there's a great, look, it wouldn't cost money. We're talking about realigning what we have and saying, how do we actually get all of them to row in the same direction? And, And I think that in and of itself would be a major change and make dollars, um, be more valuable, even if they're limited. Ken? You know, I'm a, kind of a cynic of, on planning in general, I have to say. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I know you guys are shocked. Uh, you know, I think that uh, if you take a look at the at the plans, quote unquote, uh, I think sometimes they underestimate. I think we often underestimate. Um, our power to actually influence the course of uh, of, of the economy, and uh, the regional plans, the REDC, um, you know, the strategies, quote unquote, that are developed, I think, are often designed to accommodate what we perceive we're looking for. You know, we need state support for. Um, so it's. I, I'm going to so another quick anecdote uh, dates me. I wrote the first uh, Finger Lakes Regional Economic Development, uh, not Finger Lakes, but North Country Regional Economic Development Strategy under Mario Cuomo in 1985. And uh, the regional director for, at that point, the you know, Department of Commerce, uh, Department of Economic Development, uh, was, a, was a guy named Paul Duval, and, and, and Paul was a um, I, I'm almost as cynical as I am. And I asked Paul, I said, uh-huh. well, we should be looking at these, um, uh, and we should be looking at ways in which we can make the most impact on, on the regional economy as we write the strategy. He, he looked at me, shrugged his shoulders and said, no, 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 no. Can't, you know, you've got to understand here what we want to put into this is we want it to make it as vague as possible that seems to mm. sound right so that we can drive anything, any opportunity we see in the North Country through a state funding opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, this is designed to extract money from the state of New York on behalf of the North Country. That's the goal. Well, you know, I, I don't actually disagree with that. I mean, I think often we under, underestimate the role of, of um, simple good luck 
uh, in economic development. You know, we can plan as much as we like, but I think if you look back at the, the, the events that really made a difference um, at the regional level, I think most of them really appear to be kind of random events. I mean, I, you know, in Rochester, I think back to, you know, George, uh, 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 you know, from Eastman Kodak, George Eastman, uh, George Eastman was a was a was a, 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 a chemist and a patent officer or something. I mean, and he was just messing around in his uh, in his mother's uh, garage and uh, came up with this cool device. He was an amateur photographer. He wanted to work and improve the, the processing process. You know, it wasn't anything about Rochester. He just happened to be here. So he built his company in his community and the company became um, probably the most significant single impact, you know, single determinant on Rochester in its history. So I, I don't know. There's an awful lot of serendipity in economic development. And if I may just have my light here, my my time in this, and <laughs> I will say as an economic development planner, I am reminded of the words of, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson saying how so much of his uh, success is attributable to luck and how he found that the harder he worked, the luckier he got. <laughs> All right. We're going to leave it at that, a, Michael. Well, no, can't <laughs> sorry, are you, are you, rebuttal? It is a great point. No, 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 not at all. I, I think that, so I think my, my advice, my, the bottom line advice for me around economic development is the communities need to be pre- prepared to be lucky. Yeah. Okay. All right. And, and I think that's a good place to, to leave this discussion. And I hope you both will come back again as we see um, more of the uncertainty become more certain. And yet, you know, we don't know where that's going to leave us. And so we're going to need both of your help in your respective communities and throughout New York State. So thank you very much, Michael and Kent. This is Jonathan Drapkin, and this has been Patterns and Paradigms. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.